0: where we talk frankly about what needs to change in us, what needs to change in the church, and what needs to change in the world, even as we follow and worship a God who doesn't change. I am Ed Black, your host of Transforming Faith. In his book, Good Morning, Getting Through Your Grief, Alan Hugh Cole writes, the question of why life's seasons unfold as they do, and especially why we sustain losses in the various seasons of life, remains at the forefront. We may never find sufficient answers to every question relating to why we suffer loss. At the same time, however, the Christian faith provides hope for living with unanswered questions. Today we welcome Pastor Lynn Grantsire, a mentor of mine and someone who has spent thousands of hours by bedsides or in living rooms, sitting alongside those in their hardest moments. Lynn, welcome, we are glad you're here.
1: Thanks, Ed. It's really good to be here and a privilege to be able to share with you on grief today. Um, I know you wanted to know a little bit about who I am. I've worked as a nurse um, probably about 28 years um, on and off. Uh, Then I, after 17 years of full-time working as a nurse, I went and got my master's in counseling, uh, biblical counseling, and then I served. um, When that was finished, I did a part-time private practice, and also served at my home church as a program director for congregational life. And during that time, I found my call to pastoral ministry and went to seminary. And then um, for the past 11 years, I have served as an associate pastor at Eastminster Presbyterian Church here in Columbia. And I just recently retired the 1st of August. So it's good to be here.
0: Well, congratulations on your retirement, Lynn. That is a long and distinguished career, and a career of serving people. You figured that out very early on in your career that you wanted to serve.
1: I did. I did. Um, And really moving from nursing and counseling to ministry was just a shift of how I provided care and um, comfort to people.
0: Was there something that drew you to loss or grief when you were a nurse or a pastoral care interest that may be developed when you were a nurse? Because I don't think that every nurse has the same bedside manner that that you have.
1: I think part of it was, is I did work some on oncology, but I also worked on a a floor that had A variety of patients and some were terminal and some were not. And it was always a privilege to walk with those folks as they knew the end of their time on earth was coming, that as they were getting closer and closer to death's door, um, there was something holy and sacred about it in a way to be with people and be present and and it be a holy space.
0: And you were not just Walking alongside with those patients you were walking alongside those in the hospital room
1: or Absolutely. maybe those in,
0: the, in in hospice or even a fellow nurse or a doctor who had seen something that was really hard you were you were providing care for multiple people there in that hard moment
1: I think yes it was a place to support staff and families and um, and Uh, You really become close to families in those moments of crisis and uh, loss, because they are in a place of lostness. And so to be with them was to provide a place, really an anchor, almost an anchor for them in the moments of that big transition from, from death to eternity.
0: And then you made the transition into ordained ministry, and you transitioned into a large church and you were responsible for leading the congregational care ministries and then you didn't get burned out. You kept doing it.
1: I did. Um, I think one of the things, and I learned this really in my counseling program, and Stephen Ministry uses it, it as well, is that I am the caregiver, I'm not the cure giver that it is Christ who brings about healing and hope. I can walk alongside someone. I'm not there 24-7, but God is. You know, He never leaves us or forsakes us. And so in that, it takes the onus off of the pastor as they recognize they're not the one that is keeping this person above water, that That's- it's God that does it.
0: That insight was probably very crucial for you when you started your D-Men studies, too, because you're one of the few that has specialized in pastoral care for their D-Men. You ended up writing some curriculum, correct?
1: I actually have not written the curriculum. I wrote um, my thesis was um, providing pastoral care, finding the gap. Um, And so what I was really finding the gap in was when— newly graduated seminarians begin their pastoral ministry, pastoral care isn't usually at the top of their list. It's usually way over on the bottom. And so how can we help newly ordained pastors provide good pastoral care earlier in their ministry? And so it was really looking at that aspect of it and ultimately um, It's about doing mentorship and um, having seminaries doing more mentoring, and particularly in pastoral care. Um, So I feel like it is a way to look at pastoral care um, that helps people not to get burned out, but also provides the care and the reality of the situation um, while bringing hope of God in eternity to whoever you're with.
0: When you're in school, so often you're being taught, look for themes. This is something that's more universal. This is an absolute truth. This is something to memorize. And then when you get out in the real world, as you know, you learn quickly that every single person is unique. You do not have an idea of what's going on in the pews with people when they leave on Sundays, no, what's going don't. on in their day, their daily life. And then you really learn that grief is unique. Yes. So we're currently hosting a, a grief group here at Forest Lake using this text that I referenced earlier by Alan Hugh Cole as the centerpiece. And Cole writes this... Knowing about others' experiences may prove helpful, but it is more important to attend foremost to yourself and your loss. If in, order to mour- if, in order to mourn, we first have to grieve, you can grieve most beneficially when you concentrate on the particulars of your own experience. So, thinking about your career, Lynn, and thinking about those you've sat alongside, those you've walked alongside, Tell us what those words from Cole mean to you.
1: As I think about each individual person who's gone through grief, first off, each person is unique. So their whole set of coping skills, their, the things that they've learned in life, the things that they've experienced in life are unique to them. Um, their family system and how they handle grief in their primary family system also um, is unique and that will influence how they grieve Um, and then I think too that every loss is different and every relationship is different so there's going to be a different way to grieve a long-term spouse versus someone who may have been married less than a year there's going to be a difference in mourning a loss of a parent versus a loss of a child. So all of those, all of those differences provide idiosyncrasies. They create idiosyncrasies for each loss. Um, and so you can't compare yourself to someone else in the midst of the process because the way you feel and the way you think and the way you have, handled everything else influences where you are and so every single person's grief journey because it is a journey is going to be different than um someone else's is going to be
0: i think back when i was at carolina when i was in admissions i remember i remember someone saying it was the student health center there was a uh, mental health uh, faculty member that came and spoke to a group at USC and said that the number one cause of trauma for a college freshman, and this is universal, and it makes total sense, but I never thought of it before, the number one cause of trauma, the number one cause of grief is the loss of a pet. Yes. For a college freshman.
1: And, And grief comes from lots of different places. It can come from the loss of a pet, it can come from the change in circumstances of life for students who are just going away to college and they've never been away from home. It can be retirement. It can be change of a job. Um, it can even be the birth of a baby because your whole life changes and the way that you once functioned is a loss even though it's something that you're celebrating. So I think we don't think about losses and having to grieve them except for death or divorce. And the reality is there's a lot of places that we need to grieve the losses in our lives.
0: But the first step is claiming that grief, right? And it's even hard in a funeral because, you know, we were talking about this in the grief group yesterday, We that people said it, it was hard even at the funeral to cry because you were worried about, what others were thinking, you were trying to tend to others' people's needs, and so it's hard to claim that I need to grieve right now. This is what's happened to me, and I need to take a step back and manage my life just to get through to the next day.
1: And, and I do think that's true, but I also think the funeral provides a place of celebrating um, who that person was in your life, as well as... When I do funerals, I don't just talk about the good things. We'll talk about the quirkiness as well. And so there's a place that the person is real, not, not on a pedestal. But we also think about it for the place that provides hope. And so it may not be the place of primary grieving when you do a funeral as much as that work comes later. And I think that's true in a lot of ways.
0: Many who are grieving feel some sense of regret, or they think back on their lives and say, I wish I had done this. I could have fixed this. If they had just not been in this situation, maybe something could have been avoided. So based on your experience, Lynn, as a daughter, as a sister, as a nurse, and then as a pastor, what do you tell someone who is experiencing some form of regret?
1: I think there's several things. I think, for the most part, we all have some regrets. Um, we feel like we could have done something better, we might have said something different. Um, and so, in that, um, to recognize that we're not perfect is one of the things I think about. The other one I think about is, is that um, no matter what we've done wrong, we have forgiveness in Christ. And so it is taking that regret, acknowledging it in our hearts, taking it to Christ, and receiving his forgiveness for that regret. Um, It doesn't wipe it out, but it it helps us to move from the place of being stuck. I should have done this. I had a nurse manager who told me that should is a four-letter word. Um, There are expectations that aren't realistic but it lets us begin to let that go and realize that God has forgiven us and we can claim that and begin to move forward. Um, And it also might be to write a letter to uh, that person that you feel like you let down. Um, And the other thing I think about too is what was that relationship like with that person that if you could imagine having a conversation um, and saying where you failed them, that they would probably forgive you.
0: In my own experience with the loss that I've had within the past year, uh, the, I've been going to a therapist for a couple of years now. And, the, and my particular therapist reminds me that your relationship with the person is different now, but its not it hasn't ended.
1: Correct. Correct. And you can still have that conversation and you can still remember and you can still think about who they were. I think you, there's something about knowing that person that helps you to be able to move past those regrets and to say, okay, you know what, I don't have to let this rule my life, but I can use it that I don't have it as a regret In any other relationship.
0: So you're making the point that sometimes we can let the grief trickle into our relationships with other people. That's right. And affect how we just live our lives.
1: That's right. And it does. It does. But we can also make a point of the places that we feel like we have failed and turn them around for the future. Doesn't negate them in the past, but it allows us to live differently in the future. The present and the future.
0: What if someone is angry at God during the grief stage?
1: I'd say go for it. He can handle it. Um, that 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 it's okay. Um, as I thought about emotions, we I was looking at them, and you know Jesus was angry. He turned over the money tables in the temple because his father's house was desecrated. That whatever emotions we have. They're not right or wrong. They're not good or bad. Emotions just are. And, um, and God has emotions, and Jesus has emotions. And so he had anger, he had joy, he had um, uh, grief. He had grief at the death of Lazarus. He wept at that tomb.
0: Shortest verse.
1: Sure. It is, the one everybody wants to remember. Do I have chapter and verse? No, but I know Jesus wept. Um, so those emotions of anger, of grief, of sadness, and even of joy, because how can you have joy when you're sad? But you can, and they don't, they're not isolated. Our lives are not just compartmentalized with our emotions. And so God can handle our anger, and it's okay to be angry. Whatever emotion we have, wherever we are, it is okay to have that emotion.
0: Do you have some advice if you are angry at God, you're having a hard time getting out of bed, the the mental exhaustion that you feel during your grief is just too much, and you really have a hard time getting through daily tasks, do you have some advice on what someone should be doing in that case, who is overwhelmed with life?
1: Um, You need to treat yourself with kindness. Grief, um, there's a great um, chart that provides a timeline and symptoms that you experience in the process of grief for anywhere from two days to two years. Uh, And in that, One of the things is that you will be exhausted and you will be overwhelmed at times. You'll be able to do things and then all of a sudden it's like, I can't move anymore. And you need to be kind to your body and listen to it and allow yourself the space to rest, to be kind to yourself and to not, not to say that you do that for a long time and curl up in the fetal position, but you need to give yourself this space because grief is hard work.
0: So this book, so Cole makes the point that you should try to relocate once you have gotten to the mourning stage. And so you're, the grief stage, the bereavement stage is the first part. And then he is saying that you know eventually you'll hopefully get to the, the mourning stage where it you have had the ability to relocate the loss and so that you can get back some of your daily functions it doesn't replace who has been lost or what has been lost but you have relocated it in your mind that you were able to get back to normal functioning and stuff and i think for you because of your personal life experiences too You've had to do that. You were in a position to having to do that pretty quickly because of your professional life. but And I don't know if you have been able to do that more easily as you've gained more life experience, if that makes sense, or if maybe there's something that someone can do to help them relocate a loss or a death.
1: I do think you need to be in conversation specifically about your grief, whether it's in therapy, whether it's in a support group, I ran support groups at Eastminster. Um, And it really was, the, the group itself was six months after the loss because before that, people are not always able to hold it together in a group to be able to process that way. I think there's a couple things that happened for me. Um, if you alluded to my personal experience, my sister was killed in an automobile accident when I was 20 and she was 23 years old. And I was in nursing school at the time and I vividly remember going to my professor because we were I was in the part, part of my study doing neurology and death and dying. And I did not have faith at that point in my life. Um but I think God provided that for me because it gave me a place to have eight other students as we talked about death and dying and we sat around that little circle and I just wept because um, I couldn't even talk if we talked about it and thought about it. And I went to my professor and I said, I can't do this. I'm I'm can't do this with all these people. They just don't need they don't need this and she said, You can do it, Lynn and they do need it and they are providing care for you because you notice somebody passes you Kleenex, somebody else taps your shoulder. Um, but it was my place to process at that point in time for those eight weeks of class that I went back to as my after my sister had died. And so I do think you need that place to process, you need that place to, it helped me to begin that relocation process, to begin to feel and know that someone else was willing to listen to me.
0: Was there something that happened at any point that was maybe small or what that other person would view as insignificant that you found super meaningful? Like, So I I heard someone in a podcast not long ago said that when their husband died, the most meaningful thing or the thing they remember the most is when they walked into the church, the church staff gave her a handkerchief. And it was just to say, it's okay to cry here.
1: Yeah. And we actually always have Kleenex in the pews for the family. We, it's part of just what we do that they're there. I, I think it's being sensitive to the moment. I don't know if there's a thing as much as being present and oftentimes not even necessarily speaking, but just being there with someone in the moment, um, and they are little things, and we don't we don't always know what they're going to be, so I don't know if that's helpful or not, but it's it's just noticing I really think it's having a sensitivity to who you're with, and what's going on for them.
0: Well, someone in the grief group here at the church mentioned that one of the things they remember, and this came from a fellow church member, one of the things they remember was this church member said to the one, the one who was grieving, I am here when you're ready.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
0: so I wrote that down. I was like, that's a really good line.
1: It is, because you, you don't know if they're ready to talk about it. Um, and I would often say that to people that, you know, my door is always open, no matter the time nor the place. Um, we can talk when you're ready.
0: Well, and Cheryl Sandberg, who lost her husband, she wrote, "What is an Option B?" That the the book she's the was the longtime executive for one of the social media companies, and her husband died very quickly, and she wrote that the best question she was asked was not how are you, but how are you today? And so it goes to your point about it changes. Your grief can change daily
1: it or does. hourly. And I I think, you know, we're a society that says how are you and we, we expect okay for an answer. And you need to not expect that. And you don't need to be just glibly walking down the hall saying that, but you need to stop and say it and be willing to have the time and to take the time to hear what's really going on. So it's a, it's contra to our culture.
0: So six months in would have been very hard for you to do that group where you drew on the support of other people. And I totally understand within those first six months, sometimes you are really having a hard time just managing your old life. That's right. You know, just trying to get through the day. But once you get to the reality, once the shock has worn off and the reality that that person is no longer here, is no longer with us, is hit, Cole, so again, going back to this book that we're using here at Forest Lake, he makes the argument that we should claim the death, so don't beat around the bush. Use phrases like, he died instead of passed away. He also says you should place yourself in the in the presence of reminders of what you've lost. So, you know, like for me thinking about it, I have voicemails recorded from my dad. So listening to them now, you know, um, looking at pictures, talking to my children about their granddad. So talk about claiming the death, because it seems so contrary to what we do, because we were so used to saying he passed away or no longer with us because it just it sounds softer mm-hmm. than saying he died.
1: Well, and I I think one of the you know there are four tasks of grieving and the first first task is to accept the reality of the death and that we have to come to that. And I think God guards our hearts that we absorb it a little at a time that it becomes real and then it goes away and then it becomes real again. And so Speaking about my mother died, my spouse died, is important. And, and because it does make it real. But I also think in the midst of it, which is a little contrary to, to Cole, is one of the terms I use is they died to this life.
0: I've heard you say that numerous times. times.
1: Because they did die to this life, but, but they have been born to eternal life.
0: For the record, I've stolen that phrase, thanks.
1: Well, that's good. I'm glad you stole it. Because it does, passed away isn't isn't helpful. I think the fact is they died. And so death to this life, it is death to what we know here, but it is also birth to eternal life. That is what provides the hope in the midst of the death. Because you don't want to take away someone's hope when someone has died. They need to still have hope of eternity, of resurrection, and of reunion. So I would phrase it more death to this life, although I've said they've died. Um, But I also, and I don't have a way that I can tell you I do it. It's more intuitive for me because I think I've done it so many times of where that person is, what they need to hear at the time that I'm saying it. We
0: talked about this a little while ago, but about the, the tendency that we have to compare. So thinking about my, my scenario, you know, my dad died, my dad was 74, that's a traditional life cycle. I went to my dad's funeral, but other people here, other people around the world have lost a child and that's not a traditional life cycle. And sometimes I find myself thinking, I don't really want to talk about my scenario with somebody else who to me has had something that is what the society would view as probably more traumatic and so we have this tendency to compare our situation against somebody else. And so talk a little bit about that, because when you were a pastor of a congregation of 2,000 people, you saw death all across the board, all ages.
1: I did. Um, and I think part of it is is what skills do we have to cope with it? Um, I'm thinking particularly about the, the younger men that died who left children between 8 years old and 16 years old and what capacity do they have to deal with that grief. And so um, there's nothing I can compare with that. Doing that 8-year-old's father's funeral was probably the hardest one I've ever done. As I looked at him and shared with him his father's love for him, the fact that his father did not want to leave him, but um, he couldn't fight anymore. And so I think there's a place that we can't compare because they are different. And somebody who's been married for 60 years, and they have been one, really one together, that loss is different than somebody who's been married for 60 years and they've lived life very independently of one another because marriage can be that way and so there are differences in every single loss and one is not necessarily more tragic than another in their life but it it has that feel to it. And I do think that it is harder for parents to lose a child or grandparents to have a child die than it is for spouses. And I'll say children losing parents when they're young is hard as well, Um, because it's not the normal life cycle. And you have dreams that die. You have lots of other things that that die when someone young dies.
0: It's like you're grieving the loss of dreams for when someone is young. Yes. And then when you, when it is more of a traditional life cycle, I think you grieve more of the loss of your identity or, cause I mean, I'm Dan's son, right? Right. Or I'm so, and so I am mean Elizabeth's husband and you lose that identity but maybe so that's what you're grieving in addition and so you know I, I don't know how to quantify that but loss of dreams it it, it is is brutal
1: it is and and I think that is another place that that parents who have a child born that's different than I'm going to put it in quotes the normal child they experience those losses and there's a big loss for them of who their child was going to be and to, and to begin to identify with who their child is actually going to be because they are growing up and they are going to be who they are. And how can we embrace that and yet grieve the things that we had hoped for our children?
0: The book argues that and I, I mean, I firmly agree. We both work at churches, so we know we understand that working in a church and being a part of a church is immensely valuable to all of us. And the book makes the point that faith practices really can help somebody get to that bereavement stage—the the, the the stage that's beyond grief, where you're been where you've been able to to locate it. So where you're, it's more of good morning, as he calls it, right? Right. But sometimes praying to God is maybe the hardest thing to do for someone who's grieving because your first prayer could be, "Why did this happen?" And so he says, you know, different faith practices include reading scripture, praying, just being a part of a church, and I think being a part of a church is essential for something like this because you need to be able to draw on the strength from others.
1: Absolutely. I also think that sometimes when you're in the middle of grief or you're angry, one of the tendencies is to withdraw. And the other issue is that your focus is very difficult. You have a hard time reading. You can't stay focused in one place for very long. Your mind just goes to a million different places. I have found that music is really helpful. Um, if you have favorite hymns, um, if you have um, the Christian radio station, just music that, because music I- impacts our soul. It 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 gets into our heart and it helps us to know that who God is in the middle of it as well. I think community, Christian community, is hugely important. But personally, too. Um, it's not necessarily about reading Scripture as much as it is about being in God's presence. It might be going to sit down by the water. It might be in the mountains. Um, It's a reflection on creation and of God's goodness in that and seeing him in the everyday.
0: Trying to get an encounter with God.
1: Yes, absolutely. It is being in God's presence versus trying to do a discipline uh, because they don't necessarily work.
0: Draw on people within the church also to help you. And so I know that you very much value the role of Stephen ministers. And so Eastminster is the Stephen Ministry Church, and so is Forest Lake. So talk about the role that a Stephen minister can play in I, this process.
1: I think, particularly um, in any church, really, because I think often pastors are more crisis moment. People than they are long term doesn't mean we don't do things long term, but we don't have the time to do that. And Stephen ministers are the long term people. They meet with their person usually weekly. They'll they'll text them. They'll share a scripture with them. They'll pray for them. They pray with them. They just listen to what's going on in their lives and. You really need somebody to listen to you. Uh, we, don't, we don't listen to people's stories and lives the way that we need to, the way that they deserve to be listened to. And Stephen ministers provide that. And those relationships can be amazing. Um, and I think about one in particular um, whose care receiver was someone who had experienced the death of a loved one And in the middle of that relationship, the Stephen minister's husband died. And that relationship became more mutual because they developed that relationship over that period of time, and they cared for one another in a way that could not have happened any other way. Um, And their relationships that have impact on your ability to function in the moment as well as long-term healthiness of, of the grieving process. One of the things I was thinking about before I came today was, um, you know, we, we as a society don't like pain, and we want to run from pain. And the only way to get to the other side of grief or pain is to go through it. You can't go around it. You have to go through it. And so to have somebody to go through it with you is what Stephen Ministry looks like. They go through that pain with you because you can't do it around it.
0: They run to the fire.
1: Yeah, they do. They really do run to the fire. And they just love. They listen and they love, and they recognize that Christ is in their midst. I think... I think I have one other thing I was gonna. I, I thought about as I was thinking about today, and I was thinking about my own losses. And when I was really new in faith, Psalm 30, and it really is my life psalm. But in the second portion of verse five, it sa- it's speaking of God, and it says, um, but it says, our weeping may remain for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And and what seems like a long time for us is the night, but joy does come at some point in the morning as we have walked through the grief. And the end of this psalm says, this speaks of who God is. It says, "'You, God, turn my wailing into dancing. "'You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy, "'that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. "'O Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever.'" And it may seem very foreign in the middle of grief to think that you're going to be in that place, but as you walk through the process of grieving and mourning, you will find joy once again, and God will be present in ways that you never expected Him to be present for you.
0: We used to have a longest night service here at the church. Mm -hmm. Um, we now have turned it into more of a day of service on December twenty first. But I remember when my first year that I was here, that was actually the scripture that Ellen said to every single person who came that night. Because as you know, the the holidays are rough right. for a lot of people. They mm-hmm. are. But joy comes in the morning, and she wanted to reiterate that for every single person who came.
1: And we do we did a longest night service as well, and and it was a place to be able to come and grieve and recognize the hardness of the holidays without someone being here and they're not gonna be back here and yet providing hope for the morning.
0: This has been Transforming Faith, a podcast produced by Forest Lake Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. Lynn, thank you for joining us today.
1: It was my privilege,
0: Ed. We're we'll grateful that you're here, and thank you for everything you have done for, for the black family. Thank my you. Pro- my privilege. If you have comments, questions for us, or suggestions, please contact us at at flpc.org. Until next time, we wish you God's peace.